everyone. You're listening to The Future of Food is You, a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. I'm your host, Abina Samwa, and each week I talk to emerging talents in the food world and they share what they're up to, as well as their dreams and predictions for what's ahead. As for me, I'm the founder of The Eden Place, a community that's all about gathering people intentionally around food. I love this new generation of chefs, bakers, and creatives making their way in the worlds of food, drink, media, and tech. Today's guest is Becca Milstein, CEO and co-founder of Fishwife. Fishwife, based in Los Angeles, is a woman-founded and led food company aiming to make ethically sourced, premium, and delicious tin seafood a staple in every cupboard. They source their fish from managed fisheries and aquaculture farms to bring the vibrance of conservist culture to the North American table. Becca and I chat about the hike with her co-founder that sparked the idea for Fishwife, how she thinks about sustainability in the world of fish, and how she and her team managed to get into 1,200 retailers in the United States. Thank you to Kerrygold for supporting The Future of Food is You. Kerrygold is the iconic Irish brand famous for its rich butter and cheese made in Ireland with milk from grass-fed cows. If you're like me, You've always got some butter in your fridge, and Kerrygold has the perfect options for all my culinary personalities. My baker side loves Kerrygold pure Irish unsalted butter that comes in sticks because it's easy to measure, has the high butterfat content you need for baked goods, and it allows me to control the amount of salt in a recipe. When my snacky side comes out and I need a soft, spreadable butter for making, let's say, grilled cheese... I reach for Kerrygold's Irish butter with olive oil. And the gourmand in me loves the new Kerrygold butter blends. Their take on compound butter, which is a chef fave. There's sun-dried tomato and basil, bell pepper and garden herbs, or chive and onion. Try the new Kerrygold butter blends on steamed veggies, mixed in with your favorite pasta, or slathered on a beautiful piece of fresh bread. And then, of course, there's a whole world of Kerrygold cheese to explore, including two of my faves. Kerrygold Blarney Cheese, which is a Gouda style, and Kerrygold Skellig, a tangy take on cheddar. If you haven't tried Kerrygold yet, don't delay. The future is now. Look for their butter and cheese at your favorite supermarket, specialty grocery store, or cheese shop. Visit KerrygoldUSA.com for recipes and product information. Let's check in with today's guest. Becca, thank you so much for joining us on the Future of Food is You podcast. Oh my gosh, it's all of my dreams coming true. Well, I always like to start off by asking, can you tell us where you grew up and how did food show up in your life? Yeah, I grew up in southern New Hampshire and food showed up in my life. I think my parents were both just very simple but great cooks. Always had beautiful square meals on the table. I feel like I was very lucky in that regard. But you're Jewish, right? I am Jewish, but I was raised really secularly. Like, my dad Mm -hmm. was raised Catholic. My mom was raised Jewish. But yeah, it was a super secular household. So I feel like it was just, like, good, healthy meals, but not tied to any cultural tradition. So you went to Brown, and what did you study at Brown? I studied European intellectual history. I spent most of my time doing theater and music. I mean, I worked my tail off in school, but I did a ton of theater and performing arts stuff, and that was very applicable to building a business, strangely enough. Did you feel any connection to the food scene at Brown while you were there, or? By and large, no. The alumni from Brown and the food space are, it's a really incredible lineup. 
I would say like the closest familiarity I had to like food movements and like what could be startups was Ben Chesler who started Imperfect Foods later on. Very cool. Another Brown alum? Another Brown alum. Okay, we were Brown. on the student theater board together. So I was like watching him do that. He like had started to build it at Brown. But otherwise, I was not. I was like so performing arts. I had no time for anything else. Yeah. Let's talk to Fish. Tell me about the name Fishwife mm-hmm. and what's the history and culture behind the name? Now we're going to use that that oh. history degree. Yes, yes. <laughs> Truly the only, the only place that comes yeah, in. Yeah, the only time. Yeah. Um, so the name actually came from a, another brown entrepreneur. Her name is Greer Stockman. She runs an amazing textile company called Block Shop. And I was, like, calling all the entrepreneurs I knew, like, the day after we came up with the idea for the company. And she was one of the first. And she was just Googling seafood terminology, as one does. And she came across the term fishwife. And basically, fishwife originally was just a neutral term. It was used in, like, tracks back to, like, 16th century Europe. Originally just a neutral term for the wives and daughters of fishermen who would sell their husband's wares at the market. All in the family. Yes, all in the fam, fam biz, which is, like, truly what the seafood industry is. And because fresh fish is so perishable, they gained a reputation for being, like, really loud and bossy. Just imagine, like, a lady trying to sell, like, some, you know, fresh salmon. Just being like, eat this fish. Then, like, over the years, over the centuries, it evolved into a gendered insult for women who were very, Mm, like, swore a lot. Yeah, exactly. It just is great because I can swear in a professional setting because I've given myself that right and... I love it. That's amazing. Let's talk about the phone call before you chatted with Greer. Uh, You went on a hike with a friend. Yes, yes. What was the conversation of that hike and how did it lead to the hottest tin fish brand in town? Yeah, so it was COVID and I was living with my friend Caroline and my brother John. And we like lived together for four and a half months, like just us. So, you know, you got a lot of time. You're talking about a lot of stuff. You're cooking (laughs) a lot of meals. And basically, we were just eating a bunch of tinned fish because we were busy. We were all working full-time jobs trying to get high-quality protein into our diets while not having to cook three meals a day because that's exhausting. Yeah. And also cooking meat and stuff. It's like a whole Yeah, it's a whole operation. But like, yeah. yeah. So we were eating a bunch of tinned fish. And I think it just was very much in the ether. I very much started to notice in my peer group and then like digging deeper into culinary media, that there was a rising tide of interest in tinned seafood Mm. in the U.S. And of course, like all of the articles were just citing, you know, European brands, and there just was not an American brand that had collected the movement and the interest and the excitement around them and like galvanized in the U.S. So anyway, it was sort of the the dual realization that there's this huge nearly $6 billion category in the U.S. that is, you know, it's a household staple, canned fish. Everyone grew up with at least... Sardines. Tuna. Yeah. yeah, sardines or tuna. I yeah. mean, like, sardines even. Tuna sand. Yeah. I didn't even, like, know what a sardine until I was, like, 20. <laughs> like, and now you're slinging them. And yeah. now I'm just <laughs> slinging them. But, yeah, yeah then I, so there was that. And, like, we've watched every food category be premiumized over the past 10 years. And it's like, okay. That's one truth. And the other truth is that I could just tell that people wanted to see that in in the U.S. So it was like, damn, this is going to happen. At the time when we had this light bulb moment on this hike, it was like, oh, my God, there must be like 40 people working on tin fish companies because it's such a glaring gap in the market. Turns out not really the case. There was like one other one. Yeah, yeah. I think that's so fascinating. I mean, what's interesting about the whole fishwife movement is I remember the first time I heard about fishwife. Like I grew up. So my family's from Ghana. Yeah. 
my mom would always have a lot of Ghanaian food, especially like packed in tin fish, because again, it's like also an accessible thing. Like, yeah. you know, tin fish is cheaper than fresh fish, mm-hmm. especially when you're growing up in, in a country that doesn't have the infrastructure for you to get fresh fish. So I remember being like, what is this? Why is everyone up in arms about tin? F-? I was like, this is the stuff that would collect dust at the back of the cupboard. Yes. And, and kudos to you for just you've brought the brand to people. And I think that's just like super refreshing. Yeah. But yeah. It's really cool. When I started the company, it was like two big groups of people that got it right away. And it was either like trendy food people or it was first generation Americans, no matter where they were no, from. Seriously. And yeah. yeah, I think that this is just fascinating. Yeah. Cause I feel like for first generation Americans too, it's very like your parents are very resource forward. It's like, yeah. We're just going to try and replicate. Like, everything is a substitution if need be. So, no, yeah. My mom's a huge tinfish girly, and oh, she she loves tinfish. So. She had fish wife? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a hot girl who eats Of course she <laughs> Sorry, is. Mom. She's your mama? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, let's get right in. So, the first product you had was the smoked albacore tuna. Yep, yep. And now you have a wide range of oh, products wow. from your smoked Atlantic salmon, your trout jerky gems, mm-hmm. your seasonal Cantabrian anchovies. And most recently, your sardines. Yes. What I'm so fascinated about is, you know, you talk about how you were running this and you, I'm sure, had no knowledge of the fishing infrastructure. Mm-hmm. What was the process like in acquiring your first factory connection or building that first relationship? Yeah, it was so slapdash. I think a lot of entrepreneurs in the food space, it's just there's no super streamlined, super professional way to do it. Mm-hmm. You just got to pick up the phone or open up Google and just dive in. So we were... Googling fish canneries in Portugal and Spain. That's how we started to think about building the supply chain because that's the region that we knew to be incredible at making really high quality tin fish. We were Googling in Spanish, which strangely enough, like truly does yield very different results than Googling in English. Yeah. Um, And we're just like Googling different canneries in Portugal and Spain and emailing, you know, you can find emails online. And that's how we started to figure out what the heck does a canned seafood supply chain look like? So, you know, started to work on the ex-U.S. supply chain. But that being said, like, it was the height, height of COVID. Everything was fakakta and, like, importing anything was incredibly difficult and difficult, intimidating, the whole thing. So I was working on that and simultaneously was trying to get in touch with any fisherman in the U.S. that I could, which I did not grow up knowing a whole bunch of fishermen. Yeah. But, like, did eventually get in touch with one in Northern California, and he connected me to a cannery in Oregon, and that was where our first to-market products came from, which was the smoked albacore tuna. And then the sardines, that was the first product we really started to lay the groundwork for, but it took so much longer to get to market. And your sardines are from Spain? They originally were from the Spanish fishery and the Spanish cannery in Galicia, but as I just learned more about seafood sustainability, it became clear to me that that fishery was not necessarily one that I could get behind. Mm. So we, like, got the first batch of products. I think it was, like, 10,000 cans or something. And then, like, quickly I was just like, okay, this is not, as I formed my own belief system around, you know, how I wanted to support certain fisheries and not, I was like, I just can't. This does not feel like a true alignment. So then I spent the past two years trying to find a sustainable sardine fishery that was also very high quality and tasted great and looked great. Fish is not, it's not the flashiest girl in the bunch. It really is not. But it it tastes good. It tastes amazing. I mean, sardines... Sardines are gorgeous. Like they, the ones oh, that we yeah. were selling now. But we got, we had to go through some, we had to kiss a lot of frogs to get to these sardines. 
but we finally got there, and, and yeah. that was by connecting the only MSC, Marine Stewardship Council, Certified Sustainable Fishery, which is in Cornwall, England, to the cannery in Galicia, Spain, that has that really wow. deep knowledge of how the artisanal handpacking process works. Like, it was a whole thing. <laughs> how do you think about the standards of sustainability you want while also trying to figure out ways to educate yourself on the industry and not contribute more to the the giant overfishing problem that exists right now? There are a couple of ways I think about this. First of all, we try to source not necessarily equally, but we make sure we source from both wild fisheries and really incredible aquaculture projects, so okay. farms. Mm-hmm. More than 50% of our seafood globally comes from aquaculture, and we think it's really important to partner with the best-in-class farms around the world and then try to educate people about why, first of all, they're already eating probably a whole bunch of farmed seafood and why farmed seafood is an absolutely necessary part of our seafood industry. Yeah. If you imagine that 50%, we're not taking that 50% from farmed seafood, where else is it coming from? But you need to work with the right partners that are practicing responsible farming practices. And then secondarily, we mostly partner with the Marine Stewardship Council on mm-hmm. sourcing or the Aquaculture Stewardship Council on sourcing from farms. Yeah. And those are the two like most globally recognized and respected sustainability certification organizations. And then when we want to work with a fishery that maybe there's no fishery that's big enough to be certified because like these certification processes are very expensive. Then we have our own independent sustainability consultant that looks at all of the stock reports and the stakeholders in the industry. And we sort of analyze, like, is this a fishery we can stand behind and feel good about partnering with and feel like maybe we can even support in the responsible management in some very small way of the fishery? So it's multifaceted, but, like, those are the organizations we primarily partner yeah. with. And I'm curious when you meet with these people, what have those been relationships like? And what do you think you're teaching them to about the consumer insights? Because, again, you're one of the first American Mm -hmm. brands that's not just educating, but also guiding the whole discourse around tinfish, at least on American soil. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that the seafood industry has not been able to do well is just like market itself and like also just invite people in like Americans eat less seafood than any other industrialized nation. And I think, I mean, there's a bunch of reasons for that, but I think a a big one is there just, like, aren't compelling brands that educate people about, A, how to prepare and consume seafood, but also how to navigate sustainability and how to navigate their, their purchasing decisions. So what we're trying to do is create this really friendly, inviting brand that totally breaks from the tradition of seafood marketing and Mm -hmm. what it's looked like. And in doing so, bring people in in a friendly way, get them to try a whole bunch more species by creating products that are ready to eat. It's a a huge component of why people eat seafood. And and adds the convenience factor. I feel like that's the appeal with tin fish, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like you pop up in a tin. Ready to go. Bread, butter, radish, whatever. Toast. Right now. Tostada. Yeah. And so I think because also America, we're so convenient for when it comes to our food. Yes. It's like fast casual is king. You know, you want the 20-minute dinner type situation. So. Yeah, I think it's an interesting gap that you've been able to also add to people's pantries with such high quality. And I think that's just so fascinating, which is the perfect segue because I want to talk to you about customer education. Mm -hmm. How did you envision the ideal customer and how were you thinking about the ways you want to educate people Mm -hmm. in an approachable manner? Yeah, so I think our incepting customer base has certainly been 
people that are attentive to food trends, people that are attentive to sustainability. And I think we have spent the past two and a half years like really building a consumer base that like loves the brand, loves the product, deeply engages with both. I think we've done some things well on the education front, but I think we have so much more to do. And I would say like that journey really starts now. Mm -hmm. And we've been working this year on building up a ton of really strong communications about all of our fisheries and farm partners and our cannery partners that we're going to roll out in the next few months. And that is especially prevalent as we start to expand to an audience, mostly through D2C, but also through retail that is maybe less familiar with the brand and needs more convincing, needs more explicitly stated value propositions. Like, I just feel like we were so lucky in the first two years with organic growth. People just loved the brand. They loved the product. And so it was just like, we're in no matter what. It's like signaling that you're in the food world. You're trend aware Mm -hmm. 1000%. Yeah. And now it's like we're expanding audiences. And now it's like, okay, we really need to break down explicitly why our products are different, what the sourcing looks like, what the manufacturing process looks like. So I'm really excited for that. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hi, everybody. I'm Carrie Diamond, the founder of Cherry Bomb and the editor-in-chief of Cherry Bomb magazine. If you are looking for the newest issue of Cherry Bomb, be sure to visit one of our amazing stockists. Cherry Bomb is carried by great bookstores, cafes, magazine shops, and culinary boutiques across the country and abroad. Places like Stella's Fine Market in Beacon, New York, Matriarch in Newport, Rhode Island, and Good Egg in Toronto. Visit cherrybomb.com for a stockist near you. When you think about the tins also being the first entry point for Mm -hmm. customers, you know, you walk into your Whole Foods or whatever specialty grocery store you're going to, and you see that that fishwife can, what elements are you thinking about as just incredible points for a customer? Like, okay, this makes sense. It's a fish. It's good. It seems trendy. Add to cart. It's a great question because the thing about Fishwife's design and aesthetic is like it is very maximalist and we are like packing literally every detail we can onto a product. Like you people don't people have no idea, but like every box, every single thing that's on there is like a symbol of something about the sourcing or the processing or the recipe of the fish. Like everything means something. When you're going into retail, which right now our business is basically split 50-50 retail D2C. That's really impressive. Like Um, three years in? Two and a half years. Yeah, Yeah, almost three. It's very important for your product at a grocery store to A, stand out, but B, also like very clearly communicate what it is and its value propositions. So this year we've been going through the exercise of how do we keep what people love Fishwife for, which is like kind of maximalism, while also making sure that... Some person who has never heard of Fishwife, when they go to the can food aisle, they see our product and they're like, okay, know what that is, know yeah. why I should buy it. Our most recent products that we've been rolling out are very emblematic of that, like the sardines. Yeah. You probably saw those designs. So yeah. that's like the future is like we have this big clear banner where it says the product name. And then you'll see like whether it's like a lemon or a pepper or like mm. extra olive oil, you'll see those little, you know, emblems of what's inside. And then usually there's a some sort of certification on it, whether it's yeah. fair trade or MSE or ISE. That's cool. I want to talk to you about collaborations. You've partnered with Fly by Jing. You've done giveaways with a lot of the top brands like Graza. What is your thought process on partnerships and collaborations? And how do you take something from idea to concept. Yeah. yeah. Collaborations are the lifeblood of this company. <laughs> like, So that was like what I did also in my career and what I've always just been yeah. so deeply attracted to our brand partnerships. Like, I just think it's the most fun you can have. Ah, we've done so many collaborations. I mean, basically, 
you need to make sure you're on the same page as the brand. Like, there will always be times where one brand is doing more work than the other. So it's just like making sure everyone is on the same page about what they want to get out of it and that everyone is delivering on their promise. And we've had a great past year of just amazing partnerships. Like the Fly Beijing partnership, obviously, we had no idea. Jing and I were like, let's do this. That was just so easy and like didn't even think about, you know, at the time I was still overseeing all of our marketing, was not very KPI driven, was just like, yes, this makes sense. Vibes. And I think that's fine. Like, I think it's fine when I think about brand partnerships. The most important thing is that the brands have to be aligned. And then the second thing is like, okay, do they have an audience that is one that we're not necessarily accessing yet? It's going to take a lot of resource to bring these collaborations to life. You fully do have to validate that like you're going to have an ROI on that. So I think about that a lot more these Mm -hmm. days, but I would say it's still overall so vibe driven and like what's going to be cool and what's going to hit with the customers. That's the organic marketing piece. We've got a growth marketing side of the business and that obviously they work together, but like this is the place where we can really just think about like how do we build brand equity? Like how do we continue to build out our brand story and identity through the concentric circles of these other partnerships. So I think this beer is like my absolute dream come true. Well, tell us about this beer. So you launched a new beer today. Well, at the time of this recording. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Another Cherry Bomb fave, Talia Beer. So cool. What was that conversation like? I think they reached out to us. Me and Danny were both super inspired by McKellar, and we were always like, man, it would be so awesome to put Fishwife's branding on a beer. So that was, like, always there. I think I maybe connected with Talea, like, I don't know, last year in some form or fashion, but then they reached out to us this year, and they're like, want to do this. And it's a great gift when a brand reaches out to you. You know, they're going to have to do the product development. They're going to have to do the operations. Like, it is something that I would will never take for granted because that is, it's extremely hard and time-consuming to develop a great product. Talea seems to have a very, very good handle on it and, like, are able to iterate extremely quickly because they are vertically integrated. They own their own brewery. For us, it's, like, a full-on, like, eight-month to 12-month investment in product development. So, like, they reached out and they were like, we want to create this beer together. And truly, when you have an opportunity where they're going to do the R&D work, like, you just yeah. you kind of, like, have And to... I'm sure there's been instances where you've reached out to a brand yes. and, and taken up most of that space. Yes, yeah. and it's a, it's a lot. It's a lot of work. But this one was really fun because they created the beer and we created the label. So it feels very much like, you know, we brought our strengths to the collaboration. That's kind of the dream because you're able to have this like very holistic impactful collaboration that actually is showing up in a lot of places Mm -hmm. so that time investment is really worth it do you think the future of consumer packaged goods or cpg products is in collaborations i do in so many ways like i think that we see it you know there are brand collaborations that very much feel like limited edition and Obviously, consumers just go go crazy for that, and that's yeah. why, obviously, so many brands really invest in it. But also, there are so many products that just permanently will have a brand partner, and it just, like, adds to the validation yeah. of the product. Like, I was drinking Stumptown's RTD Cold Brew, and it's an Oatly product, and yes. that name will forever be there. And it's just like, yeah, they're going to have to source their oat milk from someone. It might as well be from another brand, a reputable that, brand. And, yeah, that people have as a pantry, essentially. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, like, I'm really excited to see how the Fly by Jing product evolves over the years, and we'll be doing more and more of Oh, those. that is my favorite. I just love making a little, a little rice bowl situation. Oh, it's so good. You are in over 1,200 retailers across the United States. 
How do you convince brands to to put you on their shelves? Oh, well, I have to really give the credit to these incredible independent specialty stores around the country that have just embraced us with the most open arms I could never have imagined. Like we just we did a bunch of external pitching to those smaller specialty shops when we started, but then at some point it truly was just a flywheel and they just have come on. And then Got to give it to FAIR. FAIR is this amazing platform that connects brands with small and non-traditional retailers around the country. And they just, I mean, we bring on like, I don't know, like almost 100 accounts a month. It's more like 70 wow. probably. But like a that's lot of accounts. A lot. And that's all yeah. organic inbound. It's crazy. So our wholesale growth has been like really insane, especially this year. So there's that channel, the specialty channel, which like, again, God bless those people. They got our brand out to so many customers that ended up staying on, ordering D2C, continuing to buy at specialty shops, et cetera. And then our actual grocery partners like Whole Foods and all around the country, Bristol Farms, Lassen's, Moms, Central Market New Seasons, all these lovely, lovely places. I mean, I think we, again, we were lucky in this, in the same way we were lucky with press. It's like we, the category has not been truly innovated in ever in like a really deep, and also broad way, which yeah. is what we're trying to do. You so, brought new life to the category, yes. which any grocery store will be excited about for sure. Yes, yeah. they they want that. So that's but I'm doing the same thing right now with grocery stores that I did with social media, with press. Like I am leading actually now my team, we're starting to disperse amongst the team, which is very sick. Because I was work. not able to. It's a group to, project. It is a group project. But yeah. like pitching those buyers directly again like builds this is obviously a philosophy that i have but like it builds that relationship from the ground up and i think it's just really important so i will pass that baton off sometime soon but right now doing all the direct grocery outreach you have how many full-time staff now three full-time including myself yeah and then kind of like nine ish when you take contractors Contractors. into account which like the contractors are a full full part of our team it's just like right now we are super lean How do you think about building a lean team? And then how do you think about fundraising and just that whole environment, especially when you're coming out with a nascent product, which can often be terrifying for investors to hear? Yes, yes. So on the team front, I definitely, I think my own personal view of what work should be in one's life definitely informs the way that I think about it for my team. Like, I was always a person that, like, I had jobs in my life that I was bored at and didn't have enough work to do, and that was my nightmare. Mm -hmm. So my dream always was to have a job that was so interesting and so stimulating and that I always had too much to do. And those are the people that I'm looking for. And like, I have to be very upfront about that in the interview process. And I think most, you know, if you're trying to work at an early stage startup, you know, you're going to be absolutely ripping and learning so much and basically building your own business within a business. My team works so hard and I'm just amazed by how much they can do. I think I learned in the first year of business how much one person can do, which is a lot. And, like, I know I have so many other founder friends that have been on that journey as well where it's like, damn, one person can get a lot done. Yeah. I think the thing is, like, I bring on people that want to work really hard, really want to build their skill set and want to be, like, leaders at the company and then leaders wherever they go after Fishwife and have the skill set to bring to those places. But you do have to be very careful making sure people are not burning out because – they're working hard and they have so much responsibility. We've raised some outside capital, relatively very little, I would say, enough and, to yeah. grow. 
Is that a combination of venture, it's, angel investors, it's not, friends and family? It's mostly family offices and angels. We have a couple very early stage funds, but we're not, I would certainly not call Fishwife like a venture backed startup. But right now I'm finishing raising a round of capital and it's like, a huge part of it. I mean, the big part of it is retail and the cost that's going to come with expanding nationally into retail. But it's also making sure that I have the resource to hire other people to make sure that my team members do not absolutely just burn out the candle. Yeah. I feel like that's a bit of my obligation to them is to make sure that they have resources to protect their well-being and health and all all that. Good boss alert. Yeah. Yeah. We have a lot of aspiring Founders who listen to the podcast, people who have ideas, but sometimes the capital is often the the roadblock that stops them from fulfilling that dream. What do you think the future of fundraising, especially for food businesses, looks like? I do think it's a really hard time. In the fundraising space, I feel like truly across industry, but definitely consumer and definitely food and beverage CPG. So I do think there's a right sizing right now of how much capital should go into these companies, at what valuations, from what sources. At the end of the day, we should be building businesses to be profitable and to be self-sustaining. And obviously, there was a period over the past five years or 10 years where food companies were being invested in by tech investors that had tech growth expectations. And it's just not possible. It happens. But like, I do not believe and you know, many of my fellow founders do not believe that it is the right way to build a consumer business and especially a food business because like you need to build true brand equity. You need to take the time to like build great products, evolve them, iterate them based off your customer feedback. True exponential growth in this industry. Yeah. I just don't think it works for so many reasons. Yeah, I think like a lot of venture capitalists are not investing in this space anymore. That's probably for the better, although those of us that have become reliant on that, it's going to be really challenging. And like, yeah, yeah, it's challenging. But I think we're moving in the right direction because like we should be building businesses with great fundamentals. Yeah. Do our businesses often still need outside capital to grow? Yes. Like I could not have done this without outside capital. You need to buy the tins to sell the tins. You got to buy the tins. You got to try to buy as many as you can at once because you get cost breaks. And I I have friends that have bootstrapped all the way through. Shout out to Caitlin Mogentail from Pulp Pantry. She's just amazing. But it's really, really hard. Like you go out of stock. And going out, like, it's very hard to not go out of stock. And once you go into retail, going out of stock is a th- real threat to your business because yeah. you just, when you're building relationships with retailers, that's just not the vibe. How do you think about Fishwife making change, not just in the food industry, but also for first-time female founders? Mm-hmm. You know, again, we've talked about the whole tech dynamic. It's not easy. It's not easy being an entrepreneur, period. Mm-hmm. But I think it's especially not easy being a female entrepreneur. I'm curious to hear how you've built your network or your network of founders and how that's been supporting you. Yeah. I mean, without my network of founders, I'd be totally kaput. I talk to like at least five founders on a daily basis, whether it's just over text or it's usually just over text or a quick call or something. Like we fully rely on each other to learn and to grow because you just can't learn this stuff in school. Like podcasts are the next best thing, but like to really get into the nitty gritty, like this is not stuff that you can Google I try to have as many conversations with young founders as possible, but it definitely is a thing that I think every founder gets to. You just can't do it. You can't talk to as many people as you want to. And I'm definitely at the point where, you know, I used to take like every call that came in and I can't do that anymore. And it's like totally a self-preservation thing. Every founder gets there. Yeah. So I think that's why doing podcasts like these are important because it's like 
a scalable way to we love a good scale exactly i went to brown i had that network of incredible entrepreneurs when you talk about fundraising how did i raise my first round you know i did a lot of cold pitching but also like got some great people from the brown network so i did feel like i had a huge leg up there and i think it's very important for all founders to recognize their privilege (laughs) how do you take time off what are you doing when you're not slinging fish Oh, man, not much. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a potato. (laughs) No, I take every Saturday. I go on a big outdoor. I live in California, so I go on like a huge hike or go to the ocean and swim. Like I totally unplug every Saturday. And you just like have to do that. And then I run for exercise and that's where I like process information. It's where I like come up with ideas. It's where I like get out my rage occasionally because that is another thing people don't tell you about being a founder is like, you will be you angry. deal with some BS sometimes, <laughs> and you will need to find a way to release that yeah. energy. Oh, I love it. Becca, we are huge manifestors on the podcast. Love it. Where do you hope Fishwife goes in the next five to ten years? Yeah, I mean, we definitely have a big, big vision. We just want to, like, I've watched this tinfish movement exponentially grow over, over the past three years. And just, like, expand outwards and outwards the people that are exposed to it and and engaging in it. So that's really what we hope to continue is, like, continue expanding that out, continue educating people on why they should be eating tin fish and why, you know, it's maybe easier and maybe more sustainable and maybe more cost-effective than buying fresh or frozen fish and why it can replace maybe you're someone that doesn't want to eat chicken or red meat but disillusioned with the plant-based meat, so maybe tin fish is great. Anyway, the vision is to really, like, spread this message nationally to expand the brand in different channels. I mean, we've developed some amazing food service formats. So to continue in that direction, I just like see a future that's like America is like plastered in fishwife branding, which obviously it's like crazy. There's a fishwife sticker on a White House. Yeah, yeah. I'm just like, that's it's just such <laughs> yeah. a fun brand. And no, I just want to keep growing it, yeah. want to keep growing in the seafood space, in the sea vegetable space. I think there's just so much interesting innovation happening in yeah. the in the operations and the supply chain of our industry. And I want fishwife to be one of the faces mm-hmm. for that, for a totally new seafood industry. So that's where I see it going. I also really want to open a a sandwich shop one day. Oh, my God. (laughs) I love that. Is there a fish you want in a tin soon? We're releasing slow-smoked mackerel with chili (gasps) flakes. I'm really excited about that one. It is a gorgeous product, so unique. I'm so proud of it. I think it's going to be a hero product of ours, and I just can't wait for that to come out. And I just can't—the anchovies have been so much fun, and I just, like, the fun will not stop. I'm like, people—the way that people engage with anchovies is truly another level. Oh, anchovies are that girl. They are. Fishwife is very loved. Is there a celebrity, icon, artist of yours that you love that you want to try Fishwife? Oh, my gosh. Honestly, a lot of them have. I will say— <laughs> No big deal. I get Not to— not to <laughs> No, brag. no. I love Phoebe Bridgers. I can't help myself. I'm an East Side LA girl. She tried it like a year ago, and that was really—I can't lie—that was pretty huge for me. Maya Rudolph <gasps> recently tried it. That was really huge for me. Becca, we're gonna play our fun future food is you game. Our future flash five. Oh my god! The future of package design. Colorful. The future of CPG products. Tasty. The future of tin fish. Expansive. The future for female founders. Also expansive. <laughs> And the future of girl dinner. Girl dinner. Wow. Bread and butter, baby. <laughs> and anchovies. <laughs> Becca, 
Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I can't wait to see Fishwife continue to blossom and be a forever pantry staple. If you want to continue to support you, where are the best places to find you? If you live in California, the Northeast, or the Southwest, so like Texas or New York, New Jersey, go to Whole Foods. We launched there. We really expanded a lot this month. So, you know, velocity in our products moving off shelf is really, really important. So please buy stock up on Trovies, sardines, and fly by drink smoked salmon, which is there. Or go to our website, which is eatfishwife.com, and buy products there. It's the best margins we get, so love it. And then all of our handles are just fishwife, so check us out on Instagram. TikTok, we got a poppin' TikTok now. They're poppin' tins <laughs> on TikTok. Yes, How yes, fun. We are. Amazing. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Amina. Before we go, our guest is going to leave a voicemail at the Future of Food mailbox, just talking to themselves 10 years from now. You have reached the Future of Food as You mailbox. Please leave your message after the beep. Hi, Becca. I hope you are so great and feeling wonderful. If things have gone the way that I hope they do, you will still be running Fishwife and will have successfully spread the gospel of great tin fish from sea to shining sea, and more people will be eating more, better, more responsibly sourced seafood. And you will have helped grow a loving, hardworking, ambitious, and engaged team that basically get to see all their dreams come to life all the time, and your company will still be supporting hardworking fisher folks, farmers, and canneries all over the world, and you'll have built deep and long-standing relationships with these partners. You will also have learned to create a little bit more space for calm and quiet in your life and have stopped living in such a constant state of organized chaos, or maybe you've just organized it a bit better. You'll still ask people for advice, but you'll have a little bit more confidence in your intuition. And you'll really have seen the fishwife vision play out into the universe. Sending love from the past, Becca. That's it for today's show. Do you know someone who you think is the future of food? Tell us about them. Nominate them at the link in our show notes or leave us a rating and a review and tell me about them in the review. I can't wait to read more about them. Thanks to Carrie Gold for sponsoring our show. The Future of Food as You is a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. Thanks to the team at CityBox Studios, executive producers Carrie Diamond and Katherine Baker, and associate producer Jenna Sadu. Catch you on the Future Flip.